You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So for the scripture reading this morning, you just heard a couple verses from chapter 11, but we're actually going to, for this sermon, attempt to step back and understand the purpose of this entire section in Leviticus chapters 11 all the way through chapter 15. And that might seem like a lot, chapters 11 to 15, but it's really not because these chapters are really just doing one thing, one thing. They are establishing how Israel is to live with God in their midst within a fallen world of death. This is all about how Israel's relationship with God, how how God and Israel are to have a relationship with their lives oriented toward God, not away from God. That's the main idea of the passage. That's the main idea that I wanna unpack throughout the rest of this sermon. And I I wanna unpack it through three statements of explanation, okay? I'm gonna just state them now and we'll unpack them the rest of the way. Here they are. Here are the three points. Number one, Leviticus 11 to 15 is part of a story about moving closer to God. Number two, this movement of being closer to God requires purity and sanctification. And number three, God will sanctify his people and thus make them fit for his closeness. All right, those are the three things that we're gonna look at. And before we jump in, let's just pray again and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, glorify your name today. Amen to what Brandon has prayed. And now, Father, we recognize that we're here by your grace with your word open before us. And we ask for you, oh God, to show us your greatness and your goodness. Make your will to be done in our lives. Father, in this moment, By your spirit, we surrender to you. We open our hearts to you. And we ask for you to come, speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to start with that first statement. Leviticus 11 to 15 is part of a story about moving closer to God. Now last week in chapters 8 to 10, we heard the story of Aaron's sons, the priest Nadab and Abihu. And chapter 10 verse, verse 1 says that they authorized, they, they offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh in a way that he had not commanded. And because they did that, Yahweh consumed them with fire and they died in the holy place. Let me just fix this for a second. All right. In that story, chapters 8 to 10, <laughs> I'm good, we're good. <laughs> All right. This is a little wobbly. I just got to get it good. Okay. That story, Leviticus 8 to 10, that scene of Nadab and Abihu, within the overall narrative of the book of Leviticus, that is, that's very important. It's a very important story. And one reason we know it's important is because in chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, that chapter begins by referring back to this scene in chapter 10. We'll see this next week. We're gonna focus next week. One sermon just all about chapter 16. But chapter 16, verse one says this. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before Yahweh and died. That's chapter 16. Yahweh in chapter 16 is speaking to Moses 
And that happened on the same day that Aaron's two sons died. So see, chapter 16 is just continuing the story from chapter 10, which means that chapters 11 to 15 are inserted in this story as a kind of parenthetical, okay? There's one story happening here, but then chapters 11 to 15 kind of come in and they say, hey, by the way, important message here, they're, they're placed here strategically and thematically because of this story. And I want to show you how that all fits. All right, so I need you to think with me here. Back up, think overall. All, all along we've seen Genesis, Exodus, the whole study through the Pentateuch, we've seen that the storyline of the Pentateuch, of Leviticus, the Pentateuch, of the whole Bible, especially the first five books of the Bible, it's been answering, the storyline has been answering the question of how a holy living God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people within a fallen world of death. That's the main question. The question ultimately is, how can God have a relationship with humanity that he intended in the beginning with Adam and Eve before sin entered the world? This is the question, to state it again, it's the question basically of how can we get back to life in the Garden of Eden? That's the question. Because remember, for at least a little while, at the beginning in the garden, there was God with his image bearing creatures, Adam and Eve, and they were surrounded by the beauty of God's created world. Everything was whole and right and very good. We read in Genesis that, that God actually walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God, God was with Adam and Eve. He was there with them and they were with him in God's fellowship and God's closeness. We see that for at least a little bit in Genesis, but then after Adam and Eve sinned, they were exiled from the garden. And that point is extremely important in the Bible storyline. Adam and Eve, because of their sin, they were sent out from Eden, which means they were sent downward and eastward, eastward, okay? So downward and eastward, and the, the spatial realities here are really important. So I want you to think actual space, okay? And I'm gonna use my hands a lot, all right? Think actual space, Eden, is described in the Bible as an ascent, okay? Eden was a, a garden mountain, an ascent. An exile in the Bible is a descent. It's going downward, okay? Downward and eastward. So think Eden here, exile here. That's what these hands mean, Eden and exile. And this movement here is really important because for the rest of the Bible and especially the Pentateuch, what we see is a longing to get back to Eden. The passion, the longing of scripture is to move upward and westward, is to do this. That's the, the longing we see in the Bible. Eden is here, exile is here. And the longing to be back with God is a longing for the Edenic presence of God, the closeness of God that does this. Moving toward Eden is what we could call an Edenic movement. See what I did there? I just took Eden, I mean, Edenic movement. 
That's an Edenic movement. I want you to get the spatial realities. Edenic movement, exilic movement, right? Eden, exile, moving toward Eden, Edenic movement. This is an exilic movement. And the basic framework of these two movements is behind virtually every part of the Bible going forward. We don't have time to get into examples, but they are everywhere in Scripture. Scripture just assumes that we understand this movement, right? It's everywhere in the pages of Scripture. The the question again is, how do we get back to Eden where God was close to humanity? Mount Sinai echoed that question. And then the tabernacle highlighted that question because the tabernacle was basically a replica of the Garden of Eden. And I know that a couple weeks ago, Pastor Joe has already done this. So this is review in one way, but I think this is really helpful. So I want you to use your imaginations for a minute and pretend that this room is the tabernacle with the, the fenced in courtyard area. Okay, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, you know, images of the tabernacle, but imagine this, is, this room's the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle here, and this is the fenced in courtyard area. And what's fascinating is that's actually not hard for us to imagine because the tabernacle, if you measured from the entrance of the courtyard to the very back of the holy place in, in the tabernacle, it was about 150 feet, Okay. And if you were to measure in this space from that altar back there, back to the, the front steps right there, guess what? It's about 150 feet. So we can, we can imagine, right? That really, use your imaginations. Use the, this, this space is helpful. And imagine that this is the tabernacle. And this is like Pastor Joe's sermon, but again, just re- reminding you about that. Back there, remember the, the, marble, the uh, marble altar slab thing? Imagine that that's the most holy place, okay? That, that's the most holy place. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant stayed. And then from there, there was a veil that of course separated that most holy place from the holy place. And imagine the holy place then is kind of this area right here. And this is where we had the altar of incense and we had uh, the lampstand and the showbread. And then there's another veil that separates the holy place from the courtyard. And imagine that veil is right here. So we've got two veils, veil here, holy place, veil back there, most holy place. And then everything out here from where I'm standing to all of us, this is the courtyard, okay? And this is where we had things like the bronze basin where you washed and the bronze altar where you sacrificed. And now the whole idea of the tabernacle is the, the whole idea of, of moving toward the tabernacle, of entering through the, 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 the doors into the courtyard, moving closer to the holy place. The whole idea is that you are moving toward Eden. It's an Edenic movement. The whole tabernacle was designed to be an Edenic movement. And then outside of the tabernacle and courtyard area, there was the camp of Israel. It was the camp of all the tribes of Israel. And then outside the camp of Israel was the wilderness and the wilderness was a place of exile, a place of chaos. The whole construction here, which was patterned after the Garden of Eden, was meant to emphasize for the people of Israel, movement toward God. 
It was meant to shape the people of Israel with this Edenic movement upward and Western like this. The lives of the people of Israel were meant to be oriented this way and acclimated this way, not that way. That's the whole point. And the tabernacle was about that. The whole design of the tabernacle and the movement closer to the tabernacle, closer to the most holy place was really a way to think about all of life for the people of Israel. Because after the fall into sin, after Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, there are really just two paths for humanity. We got the two movements, Edenic and exilic, right? Toward Eden or toward exile. Well, those two movements are actually two paths. And every single human being is on one of those two paths. Even in this moment. Like right now, in this moment, every single individual in this room is either moving closer to God or closer to exile. You're either moving closer to God or you're moving away from God. And see, for Israel in the Old Covenant, their movement was mediated by priests. The the priests were set apart as holy to administer sacrifices for the people and to guide them and how to live with God in their midst. And, And that's the high point that we saw last week in Leviticus 8 and 9. The priests are set apart, everything is going well, this is exciting, the blessings are flowing. But then in chapter 10, two priests die in the holy place. Back here, they die right there, two of them. And, and that creates a crisis in this narrative. We're supposed to hear, you know, those screeching tires. We hear those sometimes in the, the storyline of the Bible. We hear them there. And we're supposed to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This must mean that although God has made a way, God has made a way through the priesthood for Israel to be with him, even the priests have to tread extremely carefully. There's, a, there's, there's, there's another layer of boundaries and limits that we apparently now have to learn about because the sons of Aaron have defied those boundaries. And we know that their defiance, at the very least, their defiance was that they did what God had not commanded. But in more detail, if we look closer at the story, I think we can see that their real offense was that they attempted to enter the most holy place. And we can deduce that from the story and from the response to what they did. Now, we know that Aaron's sons were in the holy place when they died. And in chapter 16, verse one, when it refers back to chapter 10 and their deaths, God tells Moses to tell Aaron, basically, don't make the same mistake your sons did. He says, let Aaron know that he can't, he can't just go into the holy place, the most holy place like that at any time, whenever he wants. And because God says this, we infer that's what his sons apparently had attempted to do. They attempted to draw near to God through the most holy place, unauthorized. They crossed the line. They didn't revere the glory of God. And so apparently now we see that even the priest are not holy enough 
even the priest. And that's the crisis of, of the question again. We, we would think, Israel would think, this is amazing, God is in our midst. I understand that God is in our midst, but can we really be close to him? Like, I understand that God's presence is here and everything is oriented toward that, but can we really be close to God like it was in the Garden of Eden? The death of Aaron's sons seemed to say no to that question. And now their dead bodies, death, exile, it has polluted the holy place, which is full of life and fullness. And so the question is legit. They're really wondering, can this movement actually happen? Like, is it real? Can we really do that? Well, the parenthetical here of chapters 11 to 15 is meant to answer that question. Can this really happen? That's the question. Really, can it happen? After the, the death of Aaron's sons, I don't know. Well, chapters 11 to 15 come in and they say this. Here, here's the second statement. Number two, the movement of being close to God requires purity and sanctification. And remember, chapters 11 to 15 are establishing how Israel, a sinful people, is to live with God in their midst within a fallen world of death. The answer to that question in short we see here in these chapters is that Israel must live cleanly. Now what does that mean? Well, there are two big dichotomies that we need to understand in the book of Leviticus. And you see these mentioned in chapter 10, verse 10, when God told Aaron, you, Aaron, the priesthood, are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between unclean and clean. So those are the two dichotomies. I'm gonna use my hands again, but track with me here, okay? We, got, we, we have holy and common. Okay, and then beneath common, there's another like subcategory dichotomy of clean and unclean. Got that? Holy, common, clean and unclean. And within the Old Testament, those dichotomies are meant to determine and guide this movement. That's the old covenant way of determining and helping understand and help guide the movement back to Eden. And so I want us to think about space again. Okay, use your imaginations again. Think about this space as the courtyard and the tabernacle. And now I want you to take those dichotomies and let's layer those dichotomies on this space. Okay, imagine. Tabernacle here, courtyard here. Now imagine first, we're gonna start the opposite way this time. Imagine way out there, okay, outside the courtyard. So think Summit Avenue, Saratoga, Grand Snelling. Got that? That's the block, okay? Imagine those four rows. Now, in that space is where, that's the camp of Israel. That's where the 12 tribes of Israel stayed. And then outside of that camp though, outside of Israel is the wilderness. That's the place of exile out among the nations in a world of death. And so track with me about the clean unclean. All that is out there outside the camp is unclean. It's chaos. It's a world of death, it's unclean. But inside the camp of Israel, that's clean. Both are common, okay, but outside the camp is unclean, inside the camp 
is clean. And in order to be in the camp, in order to be facing and moving toward the tabernacle, you have to go from unclean to clean. Common and clean can move toward the tabernacle into the courtyard to the priest. But then when they get here, when they get here toward the holy place, the common clean cannot enter. Only the holy can enter. So this is when we see the other dichotomy now of holy and common. Only the holy can enter into this space here, which means only the priest can do that. You must be holy. And then if we're talking back behind the the holy place to the most holy place in the Garden of Eden, as it were, there you have to not just be holy, but it's the most stipulated holiness. We're gonna see this next week. To go into the most holy place, you have to be the high priest and you can only do it once a year. It's the most extreme stipulated holiness. So think again those dichotomies and think about space, okay? All right? Unclean is moving out that way. It's facing, it's facing this way, if you do my hands. It's facing this way, away from Eden, toward exile, toward death. And clean is moving in this direction, toward the most holy place. Clean is moving this way, toward Eden, toward God, toward life. And I think that helps us, that movement helps us understand the word clean. Right, what is, we use clean, I think, differently than how the Bible intends it here. The word for clean in Hebrew is this word, tahor, and it means, uh, the, clean is a right translation, but some synonyms are gonna, I think, be helpful in understanding the concept. So when you hear the word clean, I want you to think this way. Clean, I want you to think normal from abnormal, pure from impure, natural from unnatural, healthy from unhealthy, whole from unwhole, lifeward from deathward. See, it's all about distinction. And the best way to think about the distinction is that it draws the line between Edenic life and exilic death. We still hanging in there? I know this is a lot. You got, you get, so the movements now and these dichotomies, they, they're all parallel, they all line up. Edenic life is clean, exilic death is unclean. And and, and this is important because much of the common things considered unclean are not morally offensive to God. They're not sinful, but they are unclean because they symbolize movement from life in Eden toward exile and death. These unclean things are appointed this way whereas the clean things are pointed this way. And being pointed this way, being pointed like this, facing this way, acclimated this way, is necessary for life with God in your midst within a fallen world of death. Facing this way is the only way you move closer, right? And so what I want us to do is to look briefly at these laws in chapters 11 to 15. I want to, we're not gonna spend a ton of time here, but I want you to see these at least briefly. They're, they're basically these chapters, 11 to 15, are about four things. And you can see the four things, probably if, you, if you're reading from an English translation, the subject headings give away what they're about. Chapter 11 is about animals. Um, it's about um, 
you know, laws about eating animals or having contact with uh, their carcasses. Chapter 12 is about the postpartum state of mothers. Chapters 13 and 14 are laws about discerning leprosy and how to respond to it, how to cleanse leopards and cleanse houses. And then chapter 15 is about the loss of what to do when it comes to, it's, it's about what to do with the loss of bodily fluids. And we're not gonna get into the details. Thanks be to God, right? You guys were nervous. You were nervous. We could. The layers of wonder here is just, it's just too much. But these, these things, it all has to do symbolically with life, order, and wholeness. So for example, with childbirth, leprosy, and the loss of bodily fluids. The point there in those things is a lack of wholeness. They're not sinful, but each of these involves either a loss of fluid as a kind of loss of fullness or a corruption of your body. It's either loss or injury, and loss or injury is not Edenic. It's not lifeward. It's unwhole. It's pointed that way. Got it? But here's the thing. This is amazing. The unclean can become clean. You can be facing this way, and you can be reoriented that way. What's the word for that? So if something were to go from unclean to clean, there's a word for that. What's that word, unclean to clean? These boys, know. Purif- purified, okay? That's, that's why if you, if you see a lot of times this section of Leviticus, they're called purity laws. Because to go from unclean to clean is to be purified. And that's, that's important. In order to be clean, it needs to be purified. And that, I think, helps explain the animals here. So um, when it comes to these animals, there are all kinds of different views, layers of meaning here when it comes to what these prohibited animals have in common. Uh, we don't have time to get into it, but I think just so you know, I think it has to do with the order of creation and how these animals orient toward creation and the fullness and the wholeness of these animals toward creation. Um, but, but mainly here, the main purpose of the animal laws, of the animals being clean or unclean, is that it's meant to remind Israel that distinction matters. It's meant to remind Israel that they are distinct from all the other nations of the earth and nothing would remind Israel of that better than something to do with their food because food is necessary to life and normally people eat food every day, multiple times a day. I guess it's been for several years now, I've been really interested in the topic of habit. I just, I love, books and writings and stuff on habit, the power of habit, how habits influence our lives. And I've, I've nerded out, read a bunch of stuff on this. And one practical takeaway that I've applied when it comes to the stuff with habits is that if you, want to, if, you, if you wanted to start, say, a new habit, the best way to start a new habit is to, is to not try it from scratch or in isolation, but is to take that habit and attach it to something that you're already doing. 
The idea is, is habit bundling, right? You bundle one new habit to already establish habits. You, you, you assess your life, you think about all the things you have going on, and you take that new habit and you hook it onto an already established routine, right? That, that's basically what these dietary laws are doing, and really all these laws about purity. Every time the people of Israel would eat, which is a lot, think about it. Every time they'd eat, they would remember that they were not eating the unclean foods that the unclean nations ate because God had called them out from the unclean nations. In other words, they would remember that God had made them clean. Think about the tabernacle again, right? Think about this tabernacle and way out there outside the camp. Those are the nations of the earth. It's all unclean out there, right? Well, Israel once was there too. Israel once was out there. They once were unclean, but then God, what did he do? He called them out of the uncleanness. Literally, God took Israel out of the unclean nation of Egypt and he called them to himself. God called Israel out of Egypt through the blood sacrifice of Passover and through the washing of the parted Red Sea. God purified Israel. God made Israel clean and he did it all by his grace. Don't forget that. He reminds us of that all throughout this book. God called Israel and made Israel clean by his unconditional election and calling. God had purified Israel to be his people to move this way. Israel moved this way, God says, but it's even more than that. This is the part to see. If something goes from unclean to clean, it's called purification. What's it called if something goes from common to holy? Sanctification. So remember the dichotomies. Unclean to clean purification, common to holy sanctification. Well, when God saved Israel, he didn't just intend to have Israel as a clean people, but he wanted Israel as a holy people. Leviticus 11.44, listen to it again. God says, for I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defy yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. But why, why not? Listen, for I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, which means, hey, Israel, you're clean. I saved you, I purified you, I made you clean. But listen, you shall therefore be holy for I am holy. So God doesn't just save and purify his people, but God intends to sanctify his people, which means that God doesn't intend for his people to be merely around him. He doesn't want his people to be merely directed toward him, but God wants his people close to him. He wants us close. He wants us back in the garden. He wants us with him moving this way. And he wants that for us. Like he wants that here now, today. This is the third thing to say. God will sanctify, this is the third point. God will sanctify his people and thus make them fit for his closeness. 
Now, all of this in Leviticus, you can see it is the grammar of the gospel. We all knew more about Leviticus than we thought we did because we understand the gospel. This is the grammar of the gospel. Pretty much every concept we have to understand what God has done for us in Christ comes from Leviticus. But the big difference in the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant is that the the clean, unclean dichotomy has passed away because now the identity of God's people has been extended to all nations to whoever believes. Faith. It's about faith. If you've put your faith in Jesus, whoever from wherever, if you put your faith in Jesus, it means God has purified you. It means God has called you out of darkness. He's called you out of chaos. He's called you out of exile and slavery and deathwardness. He's called you out by the blood of Jesus. God has made you clean, Christian, and he has pointed you this way, that way. But there's even more than that. God's not finished with you, Christian. He's not finished with us. God doesn't just save us, but he sanctifies us. He will make us holy. The apostle Peter, in speaking to the church, speaking to us, Peter quotes verbatim Leviticus 11:44. He says that we as the church are to be holy as God is holy, setting our hope on the future 1 Peter 1.13, setting our hope on the future coming of Jesus, we are not to be conformed to this world of exile, but we are to be transformed as holy, fit for that new world which is to come. Because the whole plan, the whole plan from the very beginning is that God wants us close. God wants us, all of us, in his most holy place. He wants to take us back to the Garden of Eden, but better, better, because now the new Garden of Eden is actually coming here. It's a garden mountain city, a holy city called the New Jerusalem. Christian, do you realize that the Christian life, our progressive sanctification, the degrees of spirit-empowered glorification that we experience now and one day we'll experience completely, that is all meant, the purpose of that is to make us fit for that world. That's, we're just getting prepared for that world, for, for there. That's what it's about. Your growth as a Christian is about transforming you to dwell with God in the most holy place, his closeness, and his closeness, which will be its own new world that will overcome this one. That's what we're doing here, okay? Like that's what this is about. That's where we're headed, all of us Christians. We're headed that way, we're headed that way. But there's even, there's even, more, there's even more than that. <laughs> Don't think that our calling to be holy, to be sanctified. Don't think that in any way it's something abstract. It's not abstract. That's not how the Bible talks. In the New Testament, to be sanctified is to become more like who? Jesus. 
So you see, God sanctifying us, God making us fit for that world that is coming here, it means that he, by his spirit, is changing us to become more like Christ. I think this is how we should think about the Christian life. It's about becoming more like Jesus, which takes us much deeper than thinking of the Christian life as just trying not to sin. The most most reduced, shallow way to think about the Christian life is to think it means only don't sin. That's part of it, but it's much deeper deeper, much deeper than that. The Christian life becoming more like Jesus, what it means is that we orient our lives toward Eden, see? It's about having, moving toward Eden. It means that we, f- we face that way. We think about Edenic movement. We, we're moving that way. That is Christ's likeness. That hit me this past week. So I, uh, that hit me a few days ago. Um, I've just been swimming in this stuff for a while. And it was one of those days where uh, I just, I made some scheduling mistakes and I overloaded my day. And what that means is that from the very beginning, I just was playing catch up the whole day. You guys ever had that happen before? You just felt like you just, I'm just scrambling, man. I'm just scrambling the whole day. And I was on the road, I was, I was driving. And as I was driving, um, I just feel, I'm not sure if I was speeding or not. I wasn't paying attention. I don't, maybe I was, but anyways, I, as I was driving, I felt in my heart, like I felt like a weight right here, just a sense of hurry. I just, I just scrambled. You know, you know what that's like? You just kind of feel it right now. I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry. And it occurred to me as I was, I was thinking about all that. It just, I just thought, is this a Danic movement? Like, like, is this moving closer to God? See, it wasn't an issue of sin, okay? It wasn't an issue, it wasn't about sin. It was about a deeper orientation of the heart. Which way am I moving? Which way am I facing? Is the way that I'm living, living like Jesus? That's the question. Am I moving closer to God? Which, remember, is the point of everything. It's the point. And I want that for my life. I want that. I want that. I want that for my family. I want that for our church. I want us to go there. Okay? I want us to go there. That's what we're, that's what we're doing here. That's what it's about. And I'll be honest with you. I just want to say this. Um, as I'm thinking and praying and I, just to be clear if if you if you are here and you want to be entertained on Sundays or if you if you want to be coddled in your sin and just stay kind of bare minimum christian life stuff first i'm glad you're here okay second you're probably not going to like it for a while, right? Because we want transformation. That's what we want. We want to go there. 
That's what we're about. We want transformation. We as a church, we want to be as Christ-like as forgiven sinners can be. We can have more of God in this world, this fallen world of death. We can have more of him. We can have more of his closeness. Look, there are wonders and glories. We've not even scratched the surface in this life of more of God that we can have. And I just want that, okay? I want us to have that. I want us to want that. I want us to go there, to go there, okay? Got it? Let's, let's go there. And that's what brings us now to the table. Because at this table, when we talk about Christ-likeness, when we talk about you know, becoming more like Jesus, just hear me, we are not talking about self-improvement. This is not about bettering yourself. This is about surrendering to what Jesus has done and is doing in you. It's about decreasing. You decrease, we decrease, self decrease, so that Jesus would increase. More of Christ, more of Jesus in our lives. That's what this table is about because what happens at this table is that we recognize as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we recognize that the only way we can be close to God is because Jesus has come here for us. It's because Jesus has reached out for us, unclean, in exile, in slavery, deathward. Jesus has reached out and he has saved us and he is sanctifying us. Jesus Christ be praised. Jesus be praised. And so this morning, if you trust in him, if Jesus has called you out of exile to himself, receive this bread and receive this cup and give him glory. We'll serve the bread first. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.